Welcome to Hustling Faith. This podcast is dedicated to helping women who want to analyze, apply, and amplify their God-given gifts. We accomplish this by discussing topics such as business, self-improvement, health and beauty, and my random thoughts about life from a Christian perspective. I'm your host, Latasha Johnson. Are you tired of feeling less than enough just because you're single? Then you'll love my new book, How to Live an Extraordinary Life with or without Mr. Right, a Christian woman's guide on how to survive and thrive on Single Avenue. It's time to acknowledge, address, and dismantle the harmful, limited mindset many single Christian women have internalized. Take the first step to discover and embrace the plans God has in store for you. If you want to be notified when the book is released, please check out the Hustle and Faith website. I cannot wait to share this with all my single ladies. You have everything you need to live an extraordinary life with or without Mr. Right. In this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Faith Mitchell. Faith is an Institute Fellow at the Urban Institute. She researches the implications and possibilities of this country's racial and ethnic evolution. She has held numerous leadership positions for major institutions, such as the U.S. Department of State and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, among many others. Dr. Mitchell is also a published author. She wrote Hoodoo Medicine, a groundbreaking study of Black folk medicine, The Book of Secrets, Part 1, a semi-factual supernatural thriller, and most recently, Emma's Postcard Album. Black Lives in the Early 20th Century, a memoir in social history. Welcome to the show, Faith. Thank you, Latasha. I'm really pleased to be here with you. Yes, it is. It is such an honor to have you on the show. So why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Okay. Um, uh, I am an author and a researcher. And let me break that down a little bit because I feel like My career has had kind of two paths combined into one. So on the one hand, uh, I trained as an anthropologist uh, at University of California, Berkeley, and worked for a little while in a kind of traditional track, you know, as an academic anthropologist. And then I moved from there to philanthropy, to be working in a couple of different foundations. And then from there to kind of policy positions. So I've done a lot of work related to health policy and social policy, and I've written a number of things, you know, in that in those areas. But then I've also had my personal projects, um, and one of them actually came out of my anthropology, which was a book I wrote many years ago called Hoodoo Medicine, uh, which is about the herbal and natural medicines that are used by the Gullah Geechee people in mm-hmm. South Carolina. And we can come back to that if you want to, because that's an interesting story. And um, then more recently, I wrote a fiction book called Book of Secrets, Part One, which is actually based on some of the ghost stories and experiences, ghost stories I heard in the Sea Islands and the experiences I had there. And I just finished writing the sequel. So hopefully it'll be published like oh. next year or so. And then most recently, I published Emma's Postcard album, Black Lives in the Early 20th Century, which is like a memoir about my grandmother, Emma, and also a social history about how Black people lived um, more than 100 years ago. She lived in Pennsylvania, so it's sort of based there, but also talks about 
you know, black life generally all across the country. So I've, I feel very blessed that I've been able to do my more personal kind of writing, but then also to be able to contribute to topics like health equity and development of a diverse healthcare workforce and things like that. Wow, that is a very impressive background. So <laughs> I've, I've got a question for you. What or who motivated you to pursue a career in anthropology? It started in high school with, I don't know if you remember Margaret Mead, who was a famous anthropologist back in the day, woman. Okay. And I read one of her books when I was in high school. And she just talked about doing research in different parts of the world about, you know, you know, anthropology is all about kind of how people define meaning and how their, their culture, you know, how they live from day to day and what their religion might be and how they structure their families and so forth. And I just found that topic really interesting. I never met Margaret Mead, but when I was an undergraduate, uh, one of the first black women anthropologists uh, taught at the University of Michigan, which I attended, her name was Niara Sudarkaza. And so she was a, a real inspiration because I you know, took her class and I also did my first research in the Sea Islands. She supervised that. And so she really uh, taught me in many ways, I think what, what being an anthropologist as a black woman was about. And even though I didn't stay, as I was saying, I didn't stay in sure. traditional anthropology, it really has imbued everything I've done since then because of that frame of reference, which is, like I said, how do people think about life and what what do they consider to be meaningful and, and so forth. That's amazing. That's amazing. And one of the main reasons why I asked that question mm -hmm. is because you don't hear too many kids, hey, when I grow up, I want to be an anthropologist. I, I know. didn't know that was a, a field of study until I got much mm -hmm. older, like, you know, like mm -hmm. high school age. It, so that's why I asked that question, because I think mm -hmm. that's incredibly interesting. I've always been a, a history nerd. So I was just like, oh, that's interesting. how did you find out about this? So that's great. <laughs> but I find now lots of, of younger people I talk to, um, I like anthropology majors in, you know, in yeah. college, because I yeah. think it's, a, it's such a um, illuminating field when you realize, oh, the way we do things is not the only way to do it, you know, yeah. and that there are other ways of doing things all around the world. To me, that was just like, what a light bulb that is going on. Yeah. Um, but it's true to your point. You don't really have kind of famous anthropologists around. You don't see them no, you don't. <laughs> coming on the view or anything like that. You know, that, That's true. And honestly, it's when it comes to when you're in school and they're discussing careers, mm -hmm. that is not one that pops up. So that's why I was just like, oh, yes. how did you find out about this? Yeah. This is very interesting. So. Yeah. To piggyback off of that, how did your background as a social anthropologist inform your approach to your research or your books? You know, it, it's, I would say the main way is social anthropology gives you like context that yeah. it helps you. So whether it's even like my, the novel that I wrote, you know, Book of Secrets, which is kind of like an adventure story. I told you it's based on ghost stories and things, you're thinking about um, the, the kind of uh, culture of the people who are part of the story. And then for sure, anthropology was part of hoodoo medicine, because I was talking about 
um, not only what are the plants that people use in the sea islands, but like why are they using these plants, which, you know, had to do with the fact that they didn't have access to medical care. And between having a kind of culture, um, cultural legacy of using the plants, and then the fact that they were also, in a sense, forced to use them because they didn't have doctors or nurses uh, anywhere near the communities where they lived, you know, so that's all the context. And then with uh, Emma's postcard album, I started with the story of my grandmother, but really, you know, in terms of enlarging it, I wanted to find out as much as I could about these black people at a particular point in time, like the, like the first decade of the 20th century, 1900 to 1910. Again, like what are their values? What do they hope to accomplish as black people? What are the barriers that they're encountering? You know, all that is like the context. Some of it is historical, but, but some of it is probably even broader than history. Cause I think of anthropology as being like very all encompassing. Cause it's like, sure. you know, the word literally means the study of man. So it's like everything that people do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. And, and you touched on this a little bit, but you recently, per you recently published a book, right? So congratulations mm -hmm. on that. That is amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book and what mm -hmm. inspired you to write this book? So it started um, with a, a discovery. Um, shortly after my mother passed away in 2003, and maybe shortly after that, I was going through this trunk that she kept in the basement in Michigan where I grew up that she had never let me like go rifling through that trunk, you know, sure. uh, when I was a kid or even in the years after that. But I was finally uh, found the key for it and I went in it and Near the top was this uh, album, very modest kind of album, and it had these postcards in it. And the the postcards that are that ended up being in my book are from what they call the golden age of postcards, which just means they were mostly um, made in Europe by these master lithographers. So they're like really attractive cards, much more interesting looking than postcards today, and because they had been in this book, in this trunk, they were in really good condition. So I would say, Natasha, for the first five years, maybe, I would just take them out occasionally and look at them. And then I it just had this growing feeling like there might be a story here. Like, And if there is a story, I wonder if I'm up to it. Because at the time that I was considering this, I was also, I also had a full-time job. I was leading a, a nonprofit organization, you know, so I didn't have a ton of free time, sure. but I had this kind of itch, like in addition to what I'm doing with this nonprofit organization, Grant Makers and Health is the name of it. But in addition to this running Grant Makers and Health, I want to do something that is more personal. That's why I was talking, you know, in the beginning when I said yeah. the kind of tracks in my life, the, yeah. and so I want to do something that um, isn't just about facts and figures, you know, but is a different kind of story. And it took me the longest time. I feel like when I look back, I had more drafts of that book trying to figure out what's the story I'm trying to tell and how do I integrate the postcards, you know, into that story. Wow. And uh, I was very fortunate that I met Jessica Harris um, whose name might be familiar to you because she wrote High on the Hog. She's she's a food historian. Yes. yes. 
the Netflix that's now on Netflix. Oh my goodness, that's like one of my favorite. Oh my goodness, that's one of my favorite documentaries right now. Yes. So she, okay. Yeah. So she has a series at the University Press of Mississippi, and and Emma's postcard album is part of that series. Um, so you know, I I'm, a friend introduced me to her, and um, you know, I went through. So sort of it didn't happen quickly, but, you know, sure. working up an idea. Here's what I'm thinking of. And oh, I should tell you, she's a postcard collector herself. So there was like a, yeah, oh yeah, like a natural Amazing. connection there. So okay. um, that was very fortuitous. And uh, so the book came out about a year ago and, and the University Press of Mississippi just did a beautiful job with reproducing these postcards that, as I was telling you, are they're so attractive because of, uh, you know, the, the artwork that went into them. Um, sure. And then, it, you know, and each chapter tells part of my grandmother's story and then part of this sort of larger story. And just to give you an idea, when I looked at the cards, I could see that my grandmother was moving around to different places. Like the cards would be addressed to Emma Crawford, care of this person and care of that person. And so that's really where my research started. I was like, well, why is she moving around? And then I realized, well, she's working for these different white families in Pennsylvania, which where she grew up. And so right away, you kind of say, what kind of, I wonder what kind of work she was doing and who are these families that she was working for? And how did that position that she was in compared to what, compared to like what other black young black women were doing at that period. You know, the, those were the kind of questions I asked myself to expand the story beyond just my grandmother's story. Um, and then you look at like, what kind of options did young black women have in that period? Needless to say, we know they were few, you know, sure. but and sure. she was out in the countryside in Pennsylvania. Uh, but, but to kind of get a feeling for that, like what were the options and how were people writing about it? Like W.B. Du Bois was writing about things like that, like black women need more options. You know, they can't just be domestics, you know, so you just keep kind of digging and digging and digging. And I was especially interested in what black people who lived at the time that I was writing about what they had to say about um, you know, the black condition and black people's situations and things like that. So it was, it took me years to do the research, but I really enjoyed it. And when I finally wrote, wrote the end, you know, it's funny, you feel a sense of accomplishment, but you also kind of miss it, you know, like, gee, I miss working yeah. on this, you yeah. know? The journey, I, the whole yes, journey yes. process, I get it. That, that yeah. makes complete sense, makes complete sense. Actually, I want to uh, ask you a question regarding the postcards. Mm -hmm. Where was there a particular postcard that really mm -hmm. kind of resonated with you, or that's one of, one of your favorites? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, there's a lot of ways to answer it. I'll say that okay. what one of the there's just okay. This was a period when there were there was a lot of racist imagery, as you probably know. In fact, there was very little positive black imagery. So. Mm -hmm. There were tons of like racist postcards, racist billboards, racist sheet music, you know, people would coon this and coon that and pickaninny and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. In my grandmother's collection, there's only one card that you would call a racist card. And I thought that was so striking because we don't know the backstory, but, you know, you think, did she get other ones and she tore them up? 
Or did she tell her friends and her family members, don't send that junk to me, you know? But it's like the absence of these very negative images in her collection is kind of striking. So instead, as I said, she has all these really beautiful cars and flowers and, you know, mm-hmm. scenery from different parts of the world, you know, that people would send her. But it's, it's, um, it's very clear that she, you know, didn't want to go down that road of the, of the racial stereotypes. Um, although the, <laughs> I think some black people maybe thought they were funny. Like the one card she has, this one racist card is from a guy who was trying to date her. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of funny because you're like, why'd you pick this one to send her? <laughs> you know, did you yeah. think that's like a funny <laughs> thing to send somebody, you know? Um, so um, I would say it's it's that um, it's her selection of cards that I think or or her values that I think are indirectly reflected in the cards that she got. That's very interesting to me. Um, I will say also that uh, one thing one theme that I went down in the book is minstrelsy. Speaking of racism, because her older Emma's older brother. Um, was played the uh, horn, played like a tuba in minstrel bands and shows. And he traveled all around the country and sent her all of these really cool postcards from the different places that he went. But then, so then I, um, I got, that got me very interested in like what was going on with minstrel shows and, you know, and they're kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, they promoted lots of racist stereotypes, as you probably know. But on the other hand, there were like thousands of Black folk who worked for them because they they were so popular, and they they were you know there were actors, there were comedians, there were um, you know people uh, like acrobats, um, there were just the musicians like Emma's brother, um, all kinds of things that we actually don't really. Um, realize in a way because you know the image we have is just some folks doing the cakewalk maybe or somebody in blackface but they were actually major employers with all kinds of jobs of people involved and there were a number of big all-black shows and Emma's brother was part of an of an all-black company that was very very popular and traveled all, all around the south and the west. I didn't know any of what you just said. I didn't I did not realize yeah. that there were like black companies that were kind mm-hmm. of not supporting that's the wrong word but but that were a part of that scene i had no idea i didn't right. know about that part because what you always see on tv mm-hmm. were the folks in blackface that's that's what mm-hmm. i associated with men's yeah oh my goodness i didn't know that it's more yeah it's more complex but I do yeah. think it's, it's kind of a position that we as black people get in often, you get kind of roped into something that yeah. is not 100% positive, and yet it is a, it's a living, you know, yeah. and yet it allows you to express yourself in some ways because, you know, the musicians who played in those, the black musicians who played in those shows ended up, you know, being the, the people who started ragtime, and other jazz forms, you know, they developed those musical forms as part of just like playing every night and all of these shows. So it was like a creative incubator at the same time as it had these negative effects also. 
it's just it's I feel like it's just kind of the black condition. You know? yeah, yeah, I do. No, it's it's definitely yeah. complex. And and I just learned a, a fact mm -hmm. right here. But what or who inspired you to study black history and culture? Because we definitely need a lot more folks like you, because, again, like I just said, I just learned that. So that that's super interesting. It was my grandfather. So uh, he had. So this was a man, my dad's dad, he was born, oh, probably in the 1880s. So by the time I knew him, you know, he was in his 60s and he had this little collection of Black history books. I mean, it was just like maybe this many books because there were so few books back then, sure. you know. Um, and I, when I would go to visit my grandparents, I would always gravitate to his collection and look at the books and and I was so fortunate I ended up inheriting his books um, and they became kind of the nucleus of, I have tons of books and his books became like the nucleus of my collection. Then when I went, when I was an undergraduate at Michigan was really, so think about them, I mean, it was a long time ago, this was the seventies, but that was the first kind of wave of, they reprinted like Zora Neale Hurston's books. So the reprints of the books from the Harlem Renaissance were coming out. Mm -hmm. And then there was just this wave of, you know, new historical research on Black Americans that I would say started in the late 60s, probably because of the riots, you know, and then it continued in the 70s and 80s. So then I was just like reading, 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 and there was like fiction. And, you know, there was just this um, flowering of material, and that really just fed my interest. And um, and then working on Emma's postcard album in particular, you know, just sharpened my interest even more because for all the stuff that's been written, you know, there's still so much we don't know. And 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 one of the main reasons is because you know if you keep people illiterate, they can't write their own stories. You know, yes. so even yes. a lot of times what we know is through white eyes, mm -hmm. which is very frustrating. And we, you just wish, you know, that you could hear the black voices from back in the day yeah. about what they were experiencing. Yeah, yeah, that is, yeah, I do agree with you on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. How can, you know, I'm a numbers girl too. My background's market mm -hmm. research. So how can the black community leverage data to advance racial equity. I know you've got such an impressive background. So well, I touched on this. So that's such a good question. I mean that is there is so much interest in that these days. Partly because we have more data now. We don't have enough, but we have more. Yep. And because there's a lot of push, you know, mm -hmm. to gather more data up. You know, it's um you know, it's like there's a phrase people use, and I don't quite have it, but you know, it's like if you don't count it, then you can't do anything about it. And yeah. so like my field, in the health field, you would be surprised, um, this is the background to answering your question, no, 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 please, please. hospitals that don't collect like racial um, information about their patients. And so because they don't collect it, they don't even know if the black patients are doing better or worse than the white patients. And typically, unfortunately, what happens is when they do collect the data and then do the analysis, they find out, oh, uh oh, the black patients are doing a whole lot worse, you know? And even then, I've been in conversations 
you know, with folks who have said, well, you know, that's why we don't want to collect data because then we have to do something about it. You know, yeah. so that's just a reminder of why those numbers are so important. Now, in the Black community, there's some really interesting work going on with community-based organizations. You know, that um, like Policy Link in Oakland, and there's some other ones around the country, you know, who are doing the data collection or using like census data or American Community Survey, you know, available data, but, you know, like crunching the numbers and like creating atlases that show, you know, the inequality in their community, like health inequality or income yeah. inequality. Um, and then they can use those like maps and visualizations and things to get people engaged, to kind of tell a story. You know, here's your neighborhood. Look how it compares yeah. with this other neighborhood. Look yeah. at how people in your neighborhood live 15 years fewer than people in this other neighborhood. Now, what are we gonna do about it? So, you know, organizations in particular have been really good at kind of mobilizing communities by using numbers to tell those stories. Because yeah. if you don't have the numbers, you don't even realize necessarily that exactly. you're part of some trend or yeah. that what you're experiencing in your neighborhood is like very different than what's going on in some other neighborhood. And you know what, also without the numbers, someone else can create the narrative. Oh, thank right? you. Absolutely. Yeah. Someone else can create the narrative without mm -hmm. those numbers. and and. Mm -hmm. Numbers can be a tricky thing, too, because they can, you know, some people are really good at being able to flip those numbers and support, mm -hmm. you know, whatever their idea is. But really, if you bo it boils down to the fact that numbers don't lie. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think about that all the time, how people can use that to create the narrative that they want to create. So, yeah. Yes. They're very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And in fact, you touched on this a little bit, but. In your opinion, how do you feel that we could address the inequality in the healthcare system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a huge problem. I know that's a huge question. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm not trying to put all of that pressure on your shoulders, but I just. <laughs> but it's an essential question. It's so huge. Yeah. I thought of, um, I, I'm going to name two things and not okay. to say those are the only two things we need to do, okay. but two big things. So one is uh, we need way more diversity of racial and ethnic diversity within the caregiving kind of workforce. So meaning like doctors and nurses, all different kinds of nurses, you know, and physicians, assistants, and so forth. Because the research has shown that when people, patients feel comfortable with a, with a you know, a, a healthcare provider, when they feel like this is a person who looks like me or who speaks my language, you know, they feel like this person understands me. And the outcomes are consistently better. Like people will, you know, um, maybe follow the doctor's orders more completely or tell tell the doctor what's wrong with them. You know, they're more comfortable and more relaxed. So they, you know, they share their information more readily. I mean, for a bunch of different reasons, um, there you just get better outcomes when there's what um, people call in the field concordance, you know, concordance between the provider and the patient. But the fact is, that, um, you know, like within the, the uh, medical workforce, you know, the docs, like only 3% of current medical students are black men, you know, which is just like, wow. just a, a ridiculous number, you know, that it hasn't gone up in decades. And of course we know that the American population is more than 3% black men. So, yeah. and, and on top of, of 
kind of the small numbers, you know, like the black medical and nursing students often have problems, like when they're in training, you know, they're the ones who are most likely to get kicked out for one reason and another, and they encounter racism from, you know, the other people in training settings. So it is a real uphill battle, but we, we need those numbers because, um, you know, the country is almost half non-white now. So you, yeah. and you need to see that kind of representation everywhere, but especially if you want to end health disparities, you know, within healthcare settings. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I would say that needs to change relates back to the point I made a, a minute or so ago about like accountability. So it's like mm -hmm. um, hospitals and clinics and, you know, other practice settings need to be collecting numbers about the patients they're seeing, who's coming in and what's happening to them. You know, are they getting better? Are they dying? What's happening to them? And then they need to be held accountable for those outcomes. Yeah. And I'm involved in a project right now that's, that relates to that. And in the state of California, for instance, they're doing some very progressive things around just the data collection, you know, the racial like data collection, really requiring it so that they can know, you know, who are the people who are, who are being covered. The big piece, which is if you're finding that your black and brown patients are having different outcomes than your white patients, what are you going to do about it? You know, you can't just say like oh, shrug or oh, something. Right, right. You've got, so the accountability, that's the hard part, right? Because that requires yeah. people to change what they've been doing. And you know how resistant people are to change. But that's yeah. what's going to be needed if we're going to move these numbers because so many... Yeah. Um, you know, these racial differences in health outcomes are unacceptably large, and they really haven't budged in all the years that I've been working in this area. That's so crazy. Seeing, trying to figure out how to really formulate this, seeing how the direction that this country seems to be headed, which slightly mm -hmm. feels backwards, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, do you believe that there is an attempt to alter or erase Black history? And if so, how does one go about combating that issue? I absolutely believe, because of my historical research, the erasure is, is real. Yeah. And in fact, you inspired me to make a little TikTok video <laughs> about that um, really? from your question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because um, just doing the research on my grandmother and even going back. So the last chapter of my book um, kind of starts with my grandmother and then it goes through family history through the 1800s because the family lived in Pennsylvania. It's lived, actually, my mother's family has lived in Pennsylvania since it was a colony. So they have a long history there. And so you would think that the record keeping would be better on black people in a state like Pennsylvania than it would be, say, if they had been in the South um, or something like that. And that was not the case. You know, you look at these small communities, um, their newspapers, for instance, and these newspapers are reporting all of this minutia about the white residents of these small towns. So-and-so broke her leg. So-and-so is going to visit her sister in Philadelphia. So-and-so, you know, just got back from a trip to Ohio. Where are the black people? And it's yeah. like, I know that my people were in this community. I know they live there, 
there's like nothing about them whatsoever. That is erasure. You know, it's just like they didn't exist. And that's, you know, not just my experience trying to find my family history, but so often, you know, you're, you're just going through the historical record and there, as I was saying earlier, there's no black voice. There's no, not even a black presence, except, um, and this relates to something else we were saying, kind of black people through white people's eyes. So like going through those old newspapers, you'll find um, colored man, you know, uh, arrested for so-and-so. Man has no name. He's just colored man, you know? So re reinforcing those stereotypes of, you know, color, you know? Or there'll be like some sort of little anecdote um, in black dialect, you know, old Miss Susie, you know, and then some little patronizing thing, you know, that makes her look foolish, something. So seen through their eyes, that's a form of erasure too, because oh, yeah. it's, again, you're like, but that's not how those people were. How were they really, you know? And it's just um, unfortunate, you know, we don't have a strong history of Kind of people's memoirs or journals. It goes back again to if you don't educate people, they can't they can't record their lives. They can't tell their stories. They're so that's another kind of erasure. You know, so yeah, that is definitely that happened historically. And what I find encouraging today though is we have people like you. We have people who are out telling the stories in their own voices. I just feel like that's what we have to do, whether it's you know podcasts, social media, newsletters, books. You know, just get out there and tell those stories of today. Tell the historical stories if you know them. Tell a futuristic story. My daughter yeah. is an artist. She tells lots of futuristic stories. Whatever it is, it's just like we've just got to get our voices out there and we won't ever maybe be able to make up for some of the holes in the historical record sure. but we can sure. we can do better going forward yeah and, and my kudos to folks like you because again i i'm such a history nerd and it's folks like you that take the time to do the research curate it in such a way that it it really resonates with folks like myself so i do want to thank you mm -hmm personally for taking the time to do that as well because I know that that could not have been easy to gather all of this information and synthesize it in a way that you know it'll resonate with other folks mm -hmm. you know so that, well, that you know, that's a blessing right there well thank you and like I said you know so glad to connect with somebody like you who helps to get the story out because one of <laughs> things when you're writing, you know, and you're sitting at your desk right here in this room, right here where I'm talking to you, kind of working away. It's like, you think to yourself, does anybody else care about this but me, you know? And, and yes, how can yes. I, you know, and how can I tell the story in a way that people will connect with it? Yeah. You know? And it just won't be me talking about my grandmother, but that people will be able to kind of tap into the themes, you know, yes. that I'm touching on and maybe see themselves in it. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings me to my next question. What is your favorite study or project that you are most proud of and why? Oh, gosh. OK, <laughs> uh, I have a lot of favorites. I'll tell you. So earlier I mentioned hoodoo medicine and okay. it's, yeah. it is. Um, I'll tell you why it might be my most favorite. So when I was an undergraduate a million years ago, 
um, with Niara Sudarkas, the, the black anthropologist I mentioned, I went on a field trip to the Sea Islands. So I'm from Michigan, as I mentioned, I had never even heard of the Sea Islands. And actually a friend of mine, a fellow anthropologist, organized this trip. We were all students. And Niara said, I want you to take a woman with you. Yay. And so he asked me, do you want to go to the Sea Islands? I had never heard of them, as I said. And I said, yes, of course. Like, let's do it. Wherever it is we're going, I'm up for it. And it was a transformative experience to go, you know, so this is the, the low country of South Carolina, where you have the Gullah Geechee people with their very strong African culture that, you know, it's reflected in their language and their food and their practices like herbal medicine and things like that. Mm. And uh, I ended up making three different visits to this community. And on the third one was when I got the idea, let me, let me ask some of these elders about what they do when they get sick. Just a simple question. Like what kind, you know, cause it was clear, as I said, there were no doctors, there were no clinics, there were no nurses on this island. It was part of Charleston County, but completely underserved. And so I just started asking people and they were happy to tell me and we'd walk up and down the road and they'd point to different plants and tell me the name of it. This is what we call this plant. This is what we use it for. So I recorded that and that eventually became the book Hoodoo Medicine. But what I didn't know was I was there at this very kind of crucial point in the history of those islands because these were older people who were there. The, um, they were like the grandparents. And then I would be there in the summer and you know the grandchildren would be there, like their parents would send them back from New York City or whatever. But there was a whole missing generation, which was the the working generation who had left because there was basically no work on those islands unless you wanted to pick tomatoes, you know, something like that. Oh, wow. And people wanted more than that. So they had moved to like at least somewhere in Charleston, but some were farther like New York City, you know, or North Carolina. And by them leaving, it, it kind of broke that transmission of this history, you know, of the plants and things. And um, so the book first came out, Hoodoo Medicine was first published by Ishmael Reed, the poet and, and novelist in the late 70s. Okay. And, um, you know, a f I think a few people read it, but I don't know. I don't, can't even tell you what the total sales were. Sure. And then about 20 years after that, I thought there was more interest in natural medicines. And I thought, let me yes. republish this book, yeah. you know, because I feel like there's an audience for it. And uh, I contacted, I ended up republishing it through a small publisher in Charleston, who then went out of business. And fortunately, Amazon existed by then. And I was able to continue selling it on Amazon. And that's how I sell it to this day. Well, meanwhile, within the Gullah Geechee communities, a new generation came along um, that was very interested in their cultural roots. And, and so now the situation is very different from when I was first there. You know, they have Gullah Geechee festivals, they have cookbooks, um, you know, you open the newspaper and there'll be articles about um, what's going on in the, in the Sea Islands. It's just like been a, a real renaissance in a way. And my book has helped um, contribute to that, I would say, by providing this knowledge that is literally from 50 years ago is when I collected it. You know, um, 
And, and so I feel very blessed to have been able to make that connection for these, these newer generations and to um, just say, these were the plants that your elders were using. And these, in their words, this is how they use them. Because I feel like, you know, maybe a few people would have known, but it's, sure. it's a, kind of a complete listing, you know, and now if you go like on Amazon or something, there are lots of uh, books I actually, to be honest, have not looked at them were folks who were claiming to be talking about black folk medicine and one thing and another, but mm -hmm. uh, mine was firsthand. And I think that that is rare information. And so yeah. um, much as I love my other books, I just feel like this is one that's kind of like for the ages, you know, because yeah. Definitely running with it. And actually during COVID, it, it got even super powerful or super popular because yes. I think so many people were interested in um, what can I do to, you know, protect my health and are there like natural medicines and things like that, that I can use. Yeah. You know what? Uh, a follow up to that. Mm -hmm. Today, do the folks that still live in that area, do they still tend to gravitate more towards what they used to use in the past? Or do they now have a combination of conventional uh, medicine or treatments, if you will? Or do they still rely mm -hmm. typically on what they've done in the past? I suspect it's a, it's a, com that's a great question. I think it's a combination because um, those older people that I was talking to 50 years ago had to use those medicines because as I sure. said, they, Lots of people didn't even have cars. So they're just on these islands, you know, um, many of them didn't have phones, you know, they didn't have running water. And, uh, and so they didn't really have alternatives to brewing up their own teas unless they got really sick and somebody sure. like took them to the hospital in Charleston. Now, you know, you have clinics out there, people have options, but in the meantime, I mean, as you probably know, there's a lot of interest in, natural medicines, oh, and people, you know, who want to use alternatives. And so I think it, even in the, in the low country, people are using probably a combination of things. And even beyond that, I mean, now selling my book on Amazon, you know, people in Germany are buying it and people in Japan. So it's like a much, it's a wider phenomenon now, which is really interesting. That's fantastic. I, I love that. Love that so much. So we're in 2024, right? We all made it. <laughs> right, right. We made it. Right, we made it. If you had to choose one word to represent your goals for this year, what would it be and why? I'm working on my voice. And I think you would see that reflected in some of my answers to some of your other questions, which is, uh, as somebody who worked for many years in more technical pursuits, just the sure. way you worked in marketing mm -hmm. um, and, and found that that wasn't enough. You know, it's like, what do I think about these things? It's easy to write about facts and figures, but what do I think? And how do I want to talk about what I think? And that's one of the reasons I got on TikTok. I was afraid. My daughter encouraged me. You know, she said, like, Mom, you got to get out there. And uh, just talk about stuff that's on your mind. And um, I find um, it's so I just talk about historical topics. And I, I and love those accounts. You have no idea how popular those accounts are. So <laughs> you kudos know? to your daughter for pushing you to get out there. Yes. 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 So 
um, I thought, okay, I can do that. You know, you, you first you're scared and then I'm like, I can do that. And, and I enjoy the challenge because, um, yeah, it's like voice. So that's what I'm working on this year and not just TikTok, but also what can I write that expresses my voice, even about technical things. Cause I'm continuing, I'm a fellow at the urban Institute. And so we're doing, you know, more technical reports, but you can still put some voice into those yeah. kinds of documents and yeah. just, you know, finding ways to ex express my views. So that's my, uh, that's my challenge for 2024. And so I have the luxury of, of not, <laughs> of voice not being, huh? it, voice is the word, correct? Y yes. Voice is the word. I just want to make sure. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'll continue. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. That the voice is the word. Okay. Right. Yeah, I was going to say I have the luxury of not being of being semi-retired, so I have I have time <laughs> to uh, work on the voice part. That's awesome. Love that. Love that. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed us connecting. What's the best piece of advice that you want to offer for those who want to follow in your footsteps? Don't be afraid. You know, I tell my daughter. I, I feel like when I look back at my life, it's like I wasted so much time being afraid. But I think as, as Black people and as women, you know, that we encounter um, just forces in the world. Sometimes we don't even completely understand what those forces are that are discouraging us or criticizing us. And... So, and you know, I think, and as women, we tend to be perfectionists anyway. Yes, so we want to be yes. so good. And um, so like when I was younger, I could just be crushed by criticism. So I've actually spent, you know, kind of decades working on that. Mm -hmm. And and that's the, the fear, you know? And, and even when I was saying to you, as I was writing Emma's postcard album and thinking like, who? Who's going to want to read this? You know, does anybody else care? And, but yet you just keep going because you realize I can't give in to the fear. I have to keep going. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you've known fear yourself. I mean, we yeah. all do. It's a very human emotion. And so that's my message to folks. Okay, be afraid. Acknowledge the fear. Don't let it stop you. That's what I would say. Don't let it stop you. I first I said, don't be afraid, but that's not possible. But don't let the fear stop you. Just keep going. Yes, I love that so much. Mm -hmm. Faith, it has been an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the show. If folks want to connect with you, how can they go about doing so? Okay, well, thanks for that. My main website is drfaithmitchell.com, um, D-R-F-A-I-T-H-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L.com. Mm -hmm. um, and that has all of my books and it has a form where you can contact me if you want to. And then I have a second uh, website, which is hoodoomedicine.com, H-O-O-D-O-O, medicine.com. That one is focused on that book, Hoodoo Medicine, in particular. And I'm on Instagram under Hoodoo Medicine and also Emma's Postcard Album, the book that I mentioned several times. And on TikTok, TikTok I am History's Voice. So those are all the ways you can find me. And all of Faith's information will be on the Hustle and Faith website, as well as the show notes. Once again, Faith, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been a pleasure. Mine as well. Thanks again for the invitation.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed listening to Hustle and Faith and would like to support the show, please consider sharing it with your friends, rate or leave a review, donate or make a purchase at our shop starring you crew. Remember, if you're everything to everyone, the risk be no one. You never know who you will inspire. See you in the next episode. Thank you.